Hello and welcome to the Anima Cafe podcast, a chance to hear the recording of our latest cafe, sharpening your skills around justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Enjoy. Hi, welcome everybody. My name is Shaquille Chaudhry. I'm co-founder of Anima Leadership. My pronouns are he and him. I'd like to start today by uh, acknowledging that our organization, Anima Leadership, is based here in Toronto, and Toronto is the traditional territories of many uh, Indigenous groups, including the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, more recently the Inuit, Inuit and Métis peoples, and specifically we'd like to recognize the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation, and we honor their people, their ancestors, and their spirits as stewards of this land. And uh, in the spirit of uh, amplifying uh, Indigenous voices, uh, today uh, uh, there's a reflection from Tanya Talaga. And in her book, All Our Relations, Finding the Path Forward. And her uh, reflection is, in an Ojibwe and Creek culture, leadership didn't mean power, it meant caring. And that's because we're going to be talking about racial scripts and and how we insert care and relationship into racial scripts. But before I do, I'd like to also introduce my uh, co-presenter uh, co friend, Dr. Emma Lind. Hey, Emma. Hi there. Hi. I'm thrilled to be here today. Great. So we're gonna we're gonna have a conversation today, and the title is, you know, at the edge of whiteness and authentically breaking out of racial scripts. So I think we should, uh, I think we should set the stage a little bit for how we got here. Is that a good, good place, Emma? Yeah, how did we get here? I was turning to you to tell us. Okay. <laughs> well, in our last big deep diversity um, winter institute, we had a participant who asked a really provocative question just as we were closing one of our sessions. And it stayed with us because it was compelling. And like the last 10 minutes of therapy, it was where, you know, the goods come out. And so he was a white man, very committed to the work. Uh, I've known him through different uh, courses and programs we've offered. And he asked a very considered question, very gently, uh, a bit nervously. And he said, you know, how do I as a white person engage in conversations across racial difference? Because even when my story is requested or when my participation is requested, I'm concerned that I can do harm, that my story on its own can be harmful. So what do I do in those moments? It was a very honest question. Now, <clears throat> it was asked at the end of a three-hour session. We were short on time. My brain was a bit tired. I felt in that moment like I couldn't go deep enough, quick enough to really um, get at the matter of what he was inviting us to think about. However, part of the reason we came up with the concept for this cafe is that we wanted to go deeper into that dilemma. But initially, even though I was fumbling through an inadequate answer, I nevertheless empathized with his uh, question and his dilemma. 
uh, I know what it's like to be in an anti-racist space as a white ally and not know the boundaries of what full participation can look like for me and not really know the ethics of sharing my own story. So I empathized. And I had an interesting reaction too, because, uh, and this led to many conversations with Emma and I and, and, and our team, is that this is where the script came up. And I thought, wow, you know, like this person was so uh, specific, but also so cautious, as you said. And they were just like, basically they were saying, I don't wanna share any part of my story because in sharing any part of my story, I will do harm. And they were convinced of that. And both of us just took a step back and I thought, wow, you know, this is interesting. How incredibly isolating. Um, where's the space to not be tight? It felt like the person was in a bit of a straitjacket. And the straitjacket was created by this script that we're going to talk about today. Um, and, and to me, I was like, where's the space to be relaxed? Where's the space to be in relationship? Where's the space to joke and be irre irreverent in this work that we do around justice? Um, it felt very much like the person was in a bit of a straitjacket, like it was very confining. Now, and, you know, Emma, you talked about empathy, but you also talked about, you know, that this was like an, one element of it was very disempowering. And then when I started thinking about disempowering, I was like, wow, you like, you know, there's lots of examples that come up for me. And I think about a person of color, uh, a woman of color, specifically in one of our trainings, um, who kind of leaned over to me at a certain point as, uh, you know, I was, I was, you know, facilitating at a certain point, leaned over and said, I will not be vulnerable in front of white women. So I'm just not going to. So I apologize now, but I can't. And that was another variation of disempowerment, but a protective aspect. It's like, I've had experiences, I don't wanna be there. So here we are, we've got two different things where you know one person in justice work who happens to be white and male is, is in this place where like, any part of my story being shared is gonna do harm. So I'm just gonna shut up and this is what I can do. And then you've got different scenario, but another voice in this justice conversation that's, that's, a, that's a person of color, a woman of color saying, I can't trust because my past has shown that white women not to be trusted and certainly not with my vulnerability. So these are just two voices in a very complicated field. And we wanna explore these. We wanna explore these because God, it's got to be different. It's got to be, it's got to be easier too. It's got to be sensitive and thoughtful. But where's the space for relationship? We want to explore that now. So, so what I want to do is I want to also just give you some backup for a second before we go deeper. I want to back up and share with you the assumptions that are underlying today. So this is this is an advanced conversation around racial justice and oppression and about systemic forms of discrimination. But we wanna just be clear what our 
what our assumptions are that underlie this. What sort of like the pre-work you you need to know is already at play here. So the racial justice ideas that are underlying this talk is really, you know, white supremacy, colonization, all these things are real. That, you know, underlying this is a recognition of uh, racism and oppression in their systemic, structural, institution forms. Things like white fragility, intersectionality, microaggressions, this is all underlying this, okay? So we wanna just set that up as, as the frame. Now, so let's, let's, go, let's go into this now a little bit because uh, this, is, this is important. So I feel like we gotta frame up today that that's the assumptions, but there's some other elements here that are at play. And I'll just pass it over to you because it's not the first time we've heard this. Right. So this isn't a conversation about a couple folks and their personal experience. What we're doing is recognizing in these stories a pattern that we've seen before. And in order to sincerely engage with the pattern, we need to go a bit beyond some of the boundaries that we normally find in anti-racist conversation and push at them a bit, which is why we've called this uh, cafe, you know, conversations at the edge of whiteness, because I've never had the experience of pushing past some of those common patterns, we're calling them scripts here, scripts that we fall into, scripts we might have been trained to adopt, trained to internalize, trained to recognize as a best practice within um, social justice spaces. And so we want to push at those scripts a little bit and identify their advantages and their shortcomings. So the thing about scripts, and I think about um, the white guy at the, ed, at the end of one of our sessions who inspired this uh, session. When he was saying, my stories can do harm, I recognize that statement uh, as coming from his role as a student in the School of Anti-Racism. He has done the work to understand his own whiteness as embedded within a broader system of power. He understands his social role as not neutral. So like, I recognize um, the language of allyship in his, in his statement. At the same time, I see him frozen and unable to be dynamic and fluid and authentic. So I too have found myself proclaiming and confessing my own privilege, you know? I'm not the right person to talk about this. I'm just going to stay silent because I know that's the right thing to do. And sometimes, of course, it is, which is part of our paradoxical relationship to scripts. Scripts are really helpful guides. Um, they, have, they are an established place in the conversation, but they can also encourage obedience and deference. And when we're being obedient, we're not, we're not in a practice. We're just deferring to a script we think is right. And so what we want to, what we're seeing is that, you know, if we really want to dismantle oppression in its different forms, in its structural forms, in its interpersonal forms, in its institutional forms, we got to be able to talk about it. And 
we've got we've to be able to uh, recognize the benefit of the script, but we've also got to be able to work past the script because a script is useful starting point, but it can become confining and rigid. So we're, what we want to do is we sat down and we, we started thinking about what are the scripts we've been handed in the context of leadership. Now, here's the other thing. Here's the other assumption that I did. I forgot to mention, which is, was on the list too, is that we're framing this in the context of leadership. We are framing this and that you're here because in some way, shape or form, you are a leader and leaders in justice work have a different kind of responsibility. We're not talking about, you know, just general white folks. We're not just talking about general folks who identify as black indigenous, as people of color, as racialized. We're talking about leaders. Because if you are a leader, you have a different responsibility. We have different responsibilities as leaders because we set the tone. And, and one of the things around, around justice work is that there's a very small group of people, um, activists, academics, those of us that are involved in organizational change work, that we are sort of setting the trajectory for change because change comes from the margins. And if you're doing justice work, you're working from the margins, you're bringing the margins to the center. And that's almost inevitable that we're gonna move in that direction. But how we get there is important. And, and the, way, the way that we are doing the transformative work is very important. So we wanna to talk today about scripts and we wanna talk about this from a leadership perspective. So having said that, we sat down and we thought about what are the scripts that white leaders have been taught? What are the scripts that BIPOC leaders have been taught around justice work? And, and so we created a little bit of a grid. Unfortunately, it's not very well, um, it's not animated. So we're gonna speak to these points. We're gonna share just a screen to kind of get you started. So you can see what it looks like. We're gonna speak to these points and then you'll get a PDF of, of this. In fact, you'll have it for our, for our discussion so you know the content that we've got here. And I know that uh, uh, Emma and Amy, uh, that you'll, you'll put that into the, into the chat so everyone has, has the PDF of it. So uh, I'm gonna just share my screen right now and we're gonna just flash this up and then we're gonna talk through a little bit of what the scripts are, or at least what some of the big beats of the script are. By no means is this complete, but it is a good starting point for our conversation. All right, so my slideshow working here. Hello, slideshow. Okay, so let's talk through this. White leaders and BIPOC leaders, there's a script that we've learned over time. And we've learned things about white people and we've learned things about BIPOC people. And this is part of a script that gets that we enact. And as I said, there's real benefits to this because it offers a really good starting point, both for folks of color and white folks to, to ultimately be thoughtful and sensitive as we step into our relationships. So Emma, do you wanna start on the sure. script for white folks? Sure. So the script that I've inherited and that I've enacted at times, when I think about my role as a white person from the position of being a white anti-racist leader and ally, I just don't want to screw this up. 
in those spaces, I'm hypervigilant. Um, every misstep would demonstrate how little I know. Uh, so this assumption that my stories are invalid because white stories are everywhere. And if I'm anti-racist, I know this. So silence and deference, those are the keys to unlocking doing this right. And when I'm silent, that means that BIPOC folks won't be wounded. Um, and I need to watch my tears because white tears are really dangerous. So suppressing both is important. Now, I don't want to be cynical about this. There are many elements of that script that I believe wholeheartedly. That doesn't mean that in a moment of freeze, I don't default to that script when I don't know what else to do, right? So this is both a personal practice, but also a broader narrative that I've inherited. So when it comes to um, how that particular script understands uh, BIPOC folks or relationships with BIPOC folks, there's this assumption that BIPOC people have all the answers. Uh, given that racism that is not part of my lived experience as a white person, then I know nothing. I'm going to simply uh, nod and um, defer. If a BIPOC person says something's racist, then, then absolutely it's true. I, I can never assess that on my own. And true justice looks like BIPOC leadership exclusively. And that's what justice looks like because BIPOC people are unidimensionally harmed by white folks. Uh, there's a kind of oversimplicity to um, that orientation when I think from the position of that script. And then white leaders, uh, sorry, uh, BIPOC leaders have also been taught a particular script through both lived experience, through being passed down, through academics, through lots of different ways. And uh, we've learned a script about white people. And, and one of the things is, uh, I'm just tired of having to educate. And that's a truth from just people asking really stupid questions over and over again, really frustrating, as though folks of color have to teach white people constantly about what's, what, how whiteness is suffocating. There's also a really strong understanding that white stories are overtold. We just do not need anymore, which is an, another truth. And there's also acknowledgement that it's time for white people to just be uncomfortable. Like we're tired of teaching, we're tired of sharing. Like you get uncomfortable with your dominance, understand it. And the shame and guilt that comes up, oh, well, that is nothing compared to what our peoples have suffered. So sit with the game, shame and guilt. That's uh, something that's there. And then one of the things that happens is that sometimes, um, relatively frequently, that white tears show up. And this tends to be uh, more often a gendered thing. And white women with white tears shows up. And that is a way uh, where folks of color, are, um, some folks of color just really see that as manipulative, really see that as, 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 a, as something that is done that is an act and it's really a way to, to remove accountability. So that's also something that we have been taught. It's also something we've experienced, let's also be clear, okay? Now, um, BIPOC folks, um, 
you know, in terms of the, the messages we know about other, uh, that we've learned about other BIPOC folks uh, is that it's, well, it's the same as above. So all these things are true, but there's some additional ones is that racism has wounded us intergenerationally, which is true, it's intergenerational trauma. And it's not just about the past, it's about the present because the harm has not stopped. It's still true today. And as a result, you know, one of the strategies is that we need BIPOC only spaces in which to heal and where we just don't need whiteness showing up. That's a message that we've internalized as part of the script. And the other thing that, that is important is to recognize that anger and rage are legitimate, that that's, a, that's part of oppression and again, another truth. And so this is something that there's lots of legitimacy given to, to anger uh, and rage when it comes to marginalized uh, folks. And, um, and here's the thing though, compassion, especially if it's directed towards dominant group members, it's kind of seen as selling out. Okay, it's often interpreted. Why aren't you angry? <laughs> is something that, that can often show up. Now, here's the subtext, and this is also important to, to name, is that underneath a lot of this, there's a subtext that says, it's never, it's rarely named, if ever, um, is that if the roles are reversed, we'd never do this to another group. If the roles are reversed, we'd never do this to another group. That's important to name, because I think that's at play. So this is some of the elements of the script, not all. And in fact, I'm sure, um, in fact, we're happy for you to uh, add other pieces of the script for whoever directed towards uh, into chat if you, if you would like to. But we just wanted to offer this as a starting point because these are some of the things that we see repeated over and over again in the script. Now, having said that, we need to explore the script because, because it's, it's important. And the next part I'm going to hand over to you, Emma, is that there's benefits to understanding the racial script. Sure. So conversations about race and racism are terrifying. It's important to name that right out loud. And when uh, I'm overwhelmed, well, it's an ingrained psychological response when any of us are overwhelmed or scared or on edge and we're experiencing a moment of threat, we'll freeze. So what do you do when you're frozen or overwhelmed? To break out of that, the script is really helpful. If, if I'm getting feedback that I'm acting in a white supremacist way, and I, it was unconscious, and I'm terrified of what that means or how I got there, then the script provides a bit of an anchor for myself. Okay, it breaks me out of my, my freezing, my fragility, and I can begin to say, okay, you know what? Maybe I can self-assess. Maybe there, I was taking up space. Maybe my story was being overtold. It does break out of that moment of freeze. It also helps folks of color to get out of the moment of freeze because if white tears, for example, show up, we it, it can be overwhelming. Someone's being overwhelmed and triggered. Now a white person is occupying a lot of space in front of us and we're like, oh damn, here we go again. And so remembering the script of like, oh yeah, this is a history. This isn't just this person that can provide us to allow allow us to put up a, a barrier to say, I, I, I'm not, I can't take this in. This might not be my place to take it in. 
So it offers, that script offers not just white folks, but also offers folks of color places to retreat to when things get hard and heavy. Or when I get overwhelmed, I don't know exactly what to do. I can default to my script. So it's very helpful. It's very useful. Right. And it's comforting, right? The script has its own inner logic. It identifies power in the room. And so it might be oversimplistic. It might not be a fully nuanced dynamic analysis of what's going on, but clarity is so comfortable. And so it's a good starting point, particularly for beginners on the journey. And when we embody the scripts, when we you know, articulate them and illustrate them, it's a code to other folks in the room that we are an ally or an activist that we are um, playing from the anti-racist playbook. Furthermore, and this is something we explore in some of our deep diversity uh, programming, when we talk about um, emotional contagion and, and how emotion spreads within a group dynamic from the most expressive person in the room, dominant personalities in the room that are even if in informal positions or they don't they might not have formal positions of power in the room if they are the most dominant the most expressive the most articulate on the subject of power and identity uh, falling into the script um, can have you recognized by that dominant personality in the room and of course what that means is uh, you can identify yourself as knowing the group code even if it's a code you're defaulting to because you're terrified or triggered or somehow not showing up with your full self, you can nevertheless be included in the in-group of folks who are recognized as committed to change. Great. So there are scripts and there's benefits to them. There's also limitations to them. The limitations are they become really rigid the limitation is that we replace script with script falls in place of relationship. So if we go back to that initial comment, I can't share my story because it's going to do harm. That's someone who's like committed to that script and terrified of going outside of it. And, and also uh, the person of color that, that they're also in a script and also for good reason, but there's a script that's at play. And, you know, it's one of these things where, you know, it's like um, sexism, misogyny, there's good reason why women should be afraid of, of men, especially heterosexual men. Like there's, there's lots of data and lots of experience of why that should be true. However, if every man is registered as a threat, then, then, the person is, is in a state of hypervigilance to a point where they can't distinguish ally from antagonist, right? And may not be able to, to, to distinguish uh, fear, uh, sorry, fear from actual threat, may not be able to distinguish uh, someone who's there to help versus someone who's there to hurt. Um, and so there's a way that, that that plays out, that can play out, because if we use identity as a way of street proofing ourselves, we're just, it's gonna create more problems and it's gonna create solutions, right? Uh, so that's really important. Now, 
so what we want to do is we, we want to then talk about how do you break out of these things? And so as we were talking about this, uh, Emma and I, you know, Emma, like we were talking, it's, and it's one of those things where it's always kind of felt like you and I haven't had a lot of struggle and that we're, we're, we actually haven't been in a script for most of our professional relationship. We've known each other, what, a year and a half now, uh, working together as colleagues. But sort of right off the hop, there was things that made it so that we immediately had rapport and we weren't caught by caught within a script. So we're going to talk about that. And I know you and I have talked about a few things. So I'm going to start with sort of my, my part of that story is that there was a lot of ease for me when I met you because immediately you had a lot of comfort with whiteness and could talk about whiteness with a lot of fluency. Uh, you, you weren't troubled by uh, being able to talk about racism and identity as a white person. And, and that was really helpful that you immediately knew some of the code. So you, you and I had shorthand around these kinds of issues. So that was really easy. And you were also progressive without being rigid. And um, what I mean by that is that you've got a lot of experience in academia and, and activism. But when I also started talking about the limitations to justice work, you know, the dysfunctions that I've seen, that I've committed myself, uh, my burnout, these kinds of cycles that, that you were really open to that conversation. In fact, you immediately stepped into it and there was a nuance. So that helped create trust for me. It's funny because there are some people on this call that have known me many years. And when you call me progressive, but not rigid, I, I imagine them being like, oh, really? Is that the Emma you met? Oh, lucky you, Shaquille. <laughs> progressive, but not rigid. News to us. Yeah, exactly. Well, fortunately, we all get to change over time. And I also want to say that, that you know, that was all at play. And the other part is that I think we temperamentally had a few connections, too. I mean, uh, you know, uh, you're gregarious, you know, you, you swear like a sail sailor. And those are places that you and I have a lot of overlap. And so, but that's not enough often, like a personality piece in my, in my experience is not actually enough to create the kind of comfort to fall out of script, to, to get past a script that, that is in and outside a script at the same time. So those are some of the things that allowed me to feel like, oh, I don't have to be rigid that in fact, we can be in these kinds of things together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the interpersonal stuff pushed the door open for me. Like it kept the door open a crack. So the interpersonal on its own isn't enough, but the fact that you, when I first met you, you were in a suit <laughs> and, and, so, and you, you, you acted a bit like a suit in the job interview. Um, but then when you swore, I thought, okay, okay, like this is a suit I can work with, you know? Um, and so that that was um, a kind of micro uh, signal that just pushed the door open that I knew that there was some flexibility with codes. And I remember, you know, I'm attracted to DEI work. Um, I think that it's really important to do uh, diversity and inclusion training in professional contexts, but I'm also really on guard and nervous about it because 
it's bridge building work and bridge building work can often lock itself within the center and not, not push the edges and offer a really watered down approach. But in the job ad, you were talking about, you know, this is bridge building work, blah, blah, blah. But you also said words like white, you said, if, if you're our ideal candidate, words like white supremacy and colonialism don't scare you. And I thought, oh, okay. So you're building a bridge having deep respect for um, radical ideas. So for me, I, I had a sense that we weren't going to be locked into one framework. I could tell that the work you were doing was um, across the spectrum of political work. And one of the things that really so a lot of, because it was a professional context and in order to apply for the job, I needed to read your work. One of the pieces of trust that was already built in was that your personal thought leadership work around your book um, was very overt about the need to marry inner work with outer work. And in my life, those two um, pillars have been locked in a kind of either or binary. The places where I've done the most emotional healing work in my life have not been places that use words like white supremacy and colonialism. And similarly, the places where I've um, honed, you know, my knowledge around the, that language are not places that talk about, you know, the emotional world. So I could tell that you were integrating these two areas. And there was this sense in which uh, your story mimicked my own in terms of engaging with radical ideas, but feeling a bit emaciated as a result, wanting more um, to both heal and participate in the revolution. Yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate you saying that um, because one of the things that I also thought too is that I work with people who, who, who can see outside certain boundaries, but there's only certain so far they can go. And one of the things that immediately helped in our in our relationship to outside the script was it was clear you had done a lot of inner work you had done a lot of therapeutic work uh, because it allowed you to flex inside and outside the space um, you could own your own stuff you could st stay in a brave conversation you could also step back you knew when to hold space you knew when it was your own shit that was coming up and you knew when it was political or if it was hazy, you were willing to be in the conversation. And so I, I feel like th those are the places in which that allowed me to build trust to say, right, like you and I can be outside the script. And, and why that's important to me is that I, I just, I hate being confined. I wanna be irreverent in the work. I wanna, you know, uh, make ridiculous jokes and make fun of, you know, myself and other people, yeah. that kind yeah. of stuff. But yeah. I'm going to do that only in the context of a relationship that I can trust that also understands the nuances with which I'm speaking. And so that's really important. Now, um, we are offering this to you folks because we're a little bit like, how do we work through this stuff? Well, Emma and I have been working through this for some time, the last year and a half professionally. We're, we're, we like the comfort that we've got in our relationship. We don't want to be challenged on it, but we've found places that allow us to be outside the script and that's important now but we also um, have had stumbles and like clumsy stuff and so we want to talk about stumbles and clumsy stuff because otherwise it can sound like oh great you've got it worked out 
Good for you. Although just, just let me bask in this moment of self-aggrandizement for a moment, Shaquille, before, before we air the dirty laundry. <laughs> That's a joke. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> so something happened to us. Uh, where we got to finally meet in person, not finally, but one of the few times we've met in person. Yeah. So I'm a skier and Emma lives out in Kelowna, BC. And I flew from Toronto to be in her neighborhood to ski because she's got fabulous skiing out there. And, and we, and I was, uh, and I was at a, at a ski resort called Big White. <laughs> I love that name. I love that name when we're talking about <laughs> racial justice. We're at a place called Big White. Okay. So I'm going there by choice. I love skiing. Emma, Emma comes up now um, and meets me for lunch. So we have a little hangout. Here's the thing. You need to understand that most of our experience together as colleagues is on this screen, okay? And, and we, don't, we don't really negotiate space in a 3D context, right? So, so we don't really even have a sense of like our body shape and heights and things like that. We, we don't. And so here we are. And, and Emma drives up and, and we are at Big White. And, and it's really important to set, to set that as, as, the, as the frame because then we kind of had a bit of an awkward interaction. Okay, can I, just, can I just interject? Yeah. So, so I drive up, it's, it's an hour from Kelowna, straight up a mountain. And I get there and Shaquille's been there a few days, he's been skiing. And when I get there, uh, the air feels different. It feels different in my lungs. I feel like I'm breathing more shallow breaths. And, uh, and I meet Shaquille and it's, it's a weird immediately just because it's a three dimension because we've got such a comfortable relationship, but all of a sudden we're in person. And so like, like, you know, so we hug. Well, I mean, I've, I've, I've had countless hours with Shaquille online, but like we've never hugged, you know, and, and we start walking from the parking lot to the restaurant and we're going over hills and we're climbing stairs and and I'm nervous and I'm getting nervous because well I guess in mo I don't feel this way all the time but uh, particularly when I'm a bit more socially on guard I'm terrified of being the fat person who is breathing too heavily walking next to someone mm. that's an old story and I don't know that I breathe so heavily, but if I'm nervous, all of a sudden I'm panting, you know, and am I just perceiving that I'm panting or am I panting? So I was like, fuck, fuck, fuck. So we're walking and, and we're going up all these hills. And at a certain point I stopped Shaquille and I was like, I just need to catch my breath. And he's like, oh, okay. And I said, and I'm thinking to myself, like, surely it's the altitude. Like, I, like, have I just been sitting on the drive up here? Like, so I say to Shaquille, like, do you find the air different up here? And he, a decade older than me, says, no, I think it's fine. I think it's fine. Here he's been, he's been skiing for days. I think it's fine. I was like, oh, thanks, Shaquille. Thanks. So, and also, like, ski culture is big white. Big white is big white. So we are just in a sea of white people. And, and Shaquille's like, I've never been to this resort. So he says, you know, I've been thinking about the restaurant we could go to and I found a restaurant and do you think it'll be okay? And he's, because Shaquille really likes being a host and he takes me to the menu and the menu is like, like a nice, but it's like a sports bar menu. 
the last time I had a meal with Shaquille, we were on his porch at a staff retreat um, where he had ordered takeout from an Afghani restaurant. And he's like, I really like this restaurant because the kebab is spiced a particular way. And I don't like the the um, the other Afghani restaurant, but this happened. And I was like, oh yeah, sure. I mean, white people and food is a whole thing, right? And I was just deferring, 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 and like praying that I didn't order the whitest thing on the menu at the Afghani restaurant. So all of a sudden she was like, what do you think of this sports bar? And I was like, oh, fuck. Like, what do I say about this? Like here's Shaquille is now my ambassador in the whitest place on earth. And I'm all activated because he's doing this kind of like male coded chivalrous thing. I'm feeling really fat. Then he's asking me if like this particular chicken club restaurant is going to be okay. And I'm just like descending into a morass of anxiety, which I think I was doing a pretty good job of hiding. Right? <laughs> right? You're doing a fabulous job of that. None of that was going through my head at all. What was happening for me was, and I and I stopped when you when you got a little breathless, uh, because you've talked about uh, size and weight and yeah. and fat in terms yeah. of both your work and what you've written about and all these different kinds of things. I'm like, whoa! And so I paused in the awkward way that I that I did, and I was like, hey, we've never really negotiated or talked through what accessibility means for you um, or size. And, you know, like, what, what do you need me to, what can I do to help or what should we be thinking about? And so we're in this kind of awkward thing. And, and it's true. Now in that moment, I'm not at all thinking about race because I choose to be at Big White. And if race things are coming up, like Emma and I have talked race left, right, and center. This is what we do. But we haven't talked that much about sizeism. We haven't talked that much about fat phobia, and we certainly haven't negotiated spaces together. So here we are doing a dance where these things are happening. It's kind of awkward. And then we get to the restaurant, and Emma goes to the bathroom. They're going to, they're, they're asking, you know, where we want to sit. And I'm like looking at really small chairs that they've got at the at the tables and I'm looking at, you know, a booth and I'm like I think the bench at the booth would be better and and um you know like the, that might be better for size and thoughtfulness and whatever <laughs> so I pick the thing and then Emma comes back and you better take over from here Emma <laughs> Shaquille Petra. Um so Shaquille uh ran the ran the booth and, and I slide into the booth, which by the way, the bench is more comfortable, but the truth is nothing's terribly comfortable when the world continually <clears throat> denies the fact that your body size is legitimate, right? So, so I slide in and my belly's like against the table and I say, hey, Shaquille, I just need to, to pull the, push the table in towards you. Oh, okay, he says, and he pulls, <laughs> he pulls the booth towards himself or the, the table towards himself and we're fine. And we have a lovely three hour lunch. And then he takes the risk and says, we've never actually negotiated physical space. Like, what do you need? And, and I kind of stumbled. I mean, I'm feeling hyper-visible. I don't really want to have the conversation. I want to kind of forget any of this exists. Um, but, and I said, you know, like, booths have always been okay but postpartum I've got a different body and you know my, my belly is coming against the table and and we just move through it yeah 
So the awkwardness and figuring out what we need to do in that space relied entirely on our trust of each other over mm -hmm. time. And had we been entirely confined by the scripts that we have been taught about race and size and fat and all of these different kinds of things, it might have gone really badly. We might not have had a really uh, wonderful three-hour lunch. We might have been like sitting in all kinds of awkwardness, but we both like hung out and we didn't. And what we wanted to do was illustrate that that we're not the example by any means, but what we're trying to illustrate is that if you can be in relationship, be aware of the script to be thoughtful, but not be confined by the script, it's much more likely you're going to be able to, to be in a different kind of relationship and also engage with each other, with, this con with these ideas around justice and oppression simultaneously, where ultimately we can take the work seriously, but we don't have to take ourselves so seriously. And so that's, that's, that's a part of us, us sharing, sharing our story. Now, what we've got is that we thought, okay, you know, what we need to do is really, um, how do we, what are some of the things that are at play to help us break out of, of some racial scripts? So we've given you, we're gonna share with you some steps I'm going to share with you some of the foundational pieces that we think are, are, are relevant that we'll, we'll go into some into small group work and take questions and comments and stuff. So um, uh, I, I can share the, the screen here, Emma, if you, want to, uh, if you want to go through some of the things that we thought about to get us started around how to break out of racial scripts. But ultimately, these are about um, oppression-based scripts. So let me, exactly. So here we go. I'll okay. Yes, we're going to see it, and I'll just highlight as you talk. Right. So, first, to be compassionate and non-judgmental when we find ourselves in these awkward places, right? We need to we need to begin expecting the awkward places, uh, and to uh, not hate ourselves for winding up there. And then to embrace the uncertainty, the imperfection, the awkwardness. Like Shaquille's um, question to me was awkward. It was an awkward moment, but it was deeply authentic and, and it built more trust than any potential for harm, right? We were very much in it together as uh, we were working that out. So this doesn't mean we discard the racial scripts. We need to be proficient in them. No one we're falling into them. They can be a compass, but not necessarily uh, getting too wed to them and understand when they're at work and what might be happening that is informing our um, deference to them. And then stepping into brave conversations, which involves a lot of um, self-regulation and courage and entering into uh, an awkward moment where we can co-create a way forward. Focus on the relationship, right? I was his friend when he was asking me about the uh, restaurant tables. I wasn't just, you know, a body or a problem to be solved. So relationally stay grounded in, in the work. And then of course, to uh, continue to deepen the foundational skills of deep diversity, which Shaquille will outline in a second. Yeah. So related Related to what we're just referring to as some of the foundational skills, there's like three things that I, I always focus on that really come out of the deep diversity concept is one is 
developing the racial pattern recognition skills, uh, which is to understand the historical and current day realities of systemic discrimination. So racial pattern recognition skills, really important, okay? And this is, um, this is everything from, or oppression pattern recognition skills more broadly. It's really simple. It's understanding that there are patterns at play and you got to know the patterns in order to interrupt them. If you, if you don't know that th there's a long historical pattern of women being interrupted at, at meetings compared to their male counterparts, then you're unlikely to catch it when it happens. You'll find a reason to excuse it. If you don't know that there's a pattern that racialized folks tend to uh, be referred to at conferences and keynotes and things like that, often by their first name, while their white counterparts are given full titles of doctor so-and-so. Like, if you don't know that's a pattern, then you may not notice it, or you may create that sense of informal informality, uh, which is an inequitable piece, okay? That, that those are just patterns. You've just got to learn them. That's a straight learning. And those are, help you understand how we got here today, but also what's alive here today. It's historical, it's sociological, present day. You just got to know, that's just stuff you know. These are patterns. You got to know them in order to interrupt them. The second area um, it is you've also got to develop what I describe in my book as psychological pattern recognition skills, which is really why do humans do what we do as individuals and as collectives? And Psychological pattern recognition skills are very minimally developed in anti-racism, anti-oppression work. That body of work builds off of everything in this first part, which is very important. But if we don't look at this, if we don't build in the psychology, don't put in the understanding, for example, that that bias and stereotypes are completely normal parts of how our brains function. They're not the domain of bad people, that they're just part of the human experience. Then we might attribute it to, well, I don't have bias. I don't have stereotypes. Everybody has bias and stereotypes. You can't not have them because it's part of how our brain learns to categorize. It's how we perceive. It's how we learn. We need those elements. So, if you don't understand that, then you might conclude something wrongly. If you don't understand that we are, that our biology is designed to gravitate, to select, to give higher priority and higher status and preference to those most like ourselves, uh, that there's a biological wiring at play, then you might misunderstand what's happening in terms of intergroup dynamics. And if you just, conclude, if you just use the historical analysis, at a certain point, you know, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be um, incorrect in concluding that there's something wrong with white people. If you just use the historical analysis, if you just use a sociological analysis, it's not hard to conclude, there must be something wrong with men. Because why is patriarchy and misogyny? these kinds, of, it's easy to conclude these kinds of things if you just use the historical piece. But the psychological helps us understand what's happening in human psychology, which is nonlinear, which is extremely complicated. So like, how well do you understand your own family? <laughs> like, are there not people in your family? Like, I have no idea why they do what they do, right? Our patterns, 
our our addictions, our trauma, our ADHD, our you know um, our autism, like all these different things are at play knowingly and unknowingly when we are interacting with each other, right? And so learning about ourselves is so important. And so psychological pattern recognition skills helps us understand the, the, the nature side of things, whereas racial pattern recognitions and oppression pattern recognition skills help us understand the nurture, the sociological, how we're socialized part of things. You need both to get a comprehensive understanding of how, how and why racism and oppression play out. So, uh, and the last thing, and this is, I think the foundational of all of this work is you gotta do the inner work. Self-awareness is the foundation for all of this work. The inner work means doing the self-reflection, doing the therapeutic, the healing work that's needed in whatever modality is alive in your communities because we've got to learn to expand our emotional capacity to hold the psychological and political realities of oppression and of just being human, because it's damn overwhelming if all we look at things is through a systemic lens. And so the inner work allows us to make meaning of why things happen so we can look upstream and go to solutions that aren't just about pulling people out of the, out of the water but it's looking upstream and trying to get to the source of the, of the, of the issues. So, so very important that these are the foundational skills that, that we think that are at play that you need in order to um, realize and break out of your racial scripts, okay? Now, in saying this, none of this is complete. We're offering our best thinking at this point and we're, we're going to continue learning. We're going to continue making mistakes. And so I, I offer this with, with that as, as your starting point. So at this point, um, oh my gosh, it's already after one. Um, we're going to just give you some time to digest, digest some of the, some of the things that you've heard. Um, we're going to take, uh, 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 we're going to go into small groups. Well, actually it's 105. Shoot. Should we do small groups or should we just stay in, in, in a large I think, group? I think we should stay in a large group personally. I think just the time. Yeah, and that might be a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, great. So large group, please. <laughs> We're getting some large oh. uh, votes in the chat. So let's, let's do large groups. Okay, let's, let's stay here. So let's start with this though. Let's start with this. Uh, let's start with, before we get into questions, let's digest some of the, some of the things. So here's the questions that you can reflect on you can type into the chat, okay? And if you have to go, no problems, we totally get it. Thanks for joining us. Um, so here's, here's some reflection questions. What's an insight or a ha for you today about racial scripts? What has racial or oppression-based scripts, uh, how they helped you and how they hindered you? And if there's an area of development with regards to um, the, the, the deep diversity uh, aspects of inner work. I'm just going to leave that as inner work. What's the areas of development for you with regards to inner work? Maybe that's what's alive for you. So I'm going to put these questions into chat and just give you an opportunity to respond um, to any of these questions. Don't be attached to, to, to all, all three. Just We just want to hear from you. What are you, what are you getting from this conversation? And we'll open up to some questions and comments as well. So let's first just take a moment. Don't hit return yet. Just what are you taking from today? Or what's an area of work? or what's been beneficial 
uh, or a hindrance around racial scripts. Take a moment to write. Don't hit return yet. Uh, as folks are leaning into their reflections and clarifying what's surfacing for them, I just want to remind everybody we've got two supportive listeners who are here. Um, if you need someone to talk to, uh, we can create um, a space for you to engage with a supportive listener. Uh, Jackie, what slide? Um, it's not too much trouble to put up a slide again, but what slide would you like? That one where you talked about um, the racial scripts, like what white people do, um, deferring, and, and I just feel like there are some there that I resonated with, but I can't remember how to articulate them. Mm. Yes, thank you. All right, hit return when you're ready, when you're offering some reflections into the space as to what's coming up for you, what you're finding helpful, all that kind of stuff. Um, what's an insight? And also a reminder for folks, because we're not going to get to everything today, but happily to take some questions and comments. If you want to go deeper on this in this work, uh, a couple of places. One is Emma's course that's coming up on decoding race for white leaders. That's specifically for white leaders, but you know that's 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 a good one. And then of course our summer institute, the uh, a deep diversity summer institute that happens in August. And that's where we also get to go deeper into these concepts. So there's just a couple of places that you can think about if you want to go into this. All right, great. Um, and we'll also take any questions uh, as well. So at this point, we want to also just open up the chat for any any um, questions or comments uh, and raise your hand, put something in the chat. It's great. We just love to hear from you. We'd love to hear some of your voices as you reflect on this, whether it's something you want to share as an insight or an aha. Clearly, we're seeing a lot of things. Any Anything you want to summarize from what you're hearing so far in the chat, Emma? Um, the benefits of the scripts. Uh, a few people are echoing a certain framing in relationship to scripts. Acknowledging that they're a thing has been helpful. Um, they are good for as a beginning first step. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The invitation for inner work has been helpful for folks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we'd love to open up some comments. Love to hear your voices. Raise a hand, step in. Heather Wood. Hi there. Hi, Anaheed. <laughs> this is, I, first of all, I just want to thank you this very much. I, I really needed this this week, as it turned out. This turned out to be something that just seems to have been the right thing at the right time. And I observed something that I observe a lot in my particular community uh, this week. And I've seen this happen before with older white activists and allies who've, who are quite a bit older than me and have done a lot of great things in their past, but then feel that they're the, should be the last word on anything. And I've, I saw an interaction with a, a, a BIPOC person and I've seen this happen a lot where they won't take the BIPOC person's feelings and at face value, it's like they know more because they were around in 1962 when we did this. And I don't know how to deal with it because I keep seeing it so often. I'm so frustrated by it. And I, I just end up getting angry. So I just wanted to say that. <laughs> I understand. Not one solution to that, but that's where, when I talk about the foundational skills, what that group of people is in need of is they have very underdeveloped pattern recognition skills. 
right? Like they don't have the racial or oppression pattern recognition skills. They actually need the script. They would actually benefit from understanding the script more deeply because they don't. And, and that is, is their area of growth. And so that kind of exposure usually also needs a certain amount of inner work to be able to open to it, especially if you've been on a journey for a long time and you think you got the answers and, you know, there's all these kind of, you know, lefty, you know, Marxisty kinds of things that are like, that's the only frame. It's like, well, you got to get update your software because we've been talking about a lot more things since then. So that's, that would be an area of work. It's much to say about how to respond, but um, because it's not, not one answer, but that's an important one. So thanks for that. Thanks for raising it. Any other comments or reflections? I see Karen. Thank you for this. Um, I just love that Heather just mentioned that because some of us old timers who have learned all the new scripts and so on uh, end up being at the brunt of what I would call millennial explaining. And you meet people for the first time in this work and they begin to talk to you about some of these concepts as if you've never heard of them before. And in a way that they don't mean to be arrogant, but we all, it, I love that concept that you put about, well, if things were reversed, I would never yeah. behave like that. Yeah. Because, you know, Emma, you described it very well and uh, Shaquille in an area that you've never cons uh, considered. Well, we have that with, you know, when it's sexual orientation or when it, it's a religious minority or when it's, you know, people with different political ideologies. And we do fall into those scripts, mantras, ideologies, and behave as if the other person didn't have a, a brain in their head. So mm. it's it this does come at the right time because um, you know that old saying, physician heal thyself. Mm -hmm. And I'm finding mm -hmm. too often in diversity, equity, and inclusion spaces where people are teaching people how to dismantle systemic oppression and not silence and marginalize people, some leaders abuse their own power in that context, whether they're a professor or they're, you know, someone who, you know, a lawyer or whatever they are of whatever background. And and abuse that power of their position to silence and marginalize others. So this self-reflection and the notion of scripts is, is outstanding. So thank you for this. Thank you, Karen. That's that's wonderful. Great. I see that Aiden um, has her hand up. I'd also lo love to invite folks who identify as Black, as Indigenous, as people of color as well. If you have something to offer, some reflections, it'd be really great to hear from you too. But Aiden, you're, you're up. I was just saying that the conversation today kind of made me think I'm an educator and I'm also a team leader of educators. So it made me really think about where scripts come into play into my world um, and what I do in the day to day and how to maybe recognize where children are maybe falling into scripts and to see how we can maybe, you know, allow them to have free thinking about those things or invite them to see other people's perspectives rather than just to follow along with what they, you know, think is in that place. So just kind of really made me think about 
really watching that with the children and, and how that is. I think I have a really trusting relationship with my staff and I think that we're very good um, with each other, which I think they're both actually here, but it's, it's, it's really interesting to think about it with the children and what they're seeing and what their understanding of kind of what they're supposed to do in these situations are. So thank you, both of you. So welcome. Yeah. Other comments or questions? I have a quick question. You know, has any attention been given to the fact that no one is born a racist? Mm -hmm. So the question that I'm asking is this. If someone has used handing someone a script, so if no one is born a racist, mm -hmm. where did the script come from? Yeah. yeah. And how did they develop the script? Right. You know, we often hear and people use the terms, you know, institutional racism, systemic racism, but I'm, I'm yet to hear people talk about the individual. Mm -hmm. Because you can go into any building. There is no building on planet Earth that's racist. It's the people that walk in and out of that building. So again, my concern is, you know, when we talk about systemic and institutional racism, in many, many ways, we are diluting or we are in, in, in many ways, you know, just kind of protecting ourselves from our own racism, okay? And so it, it, at some point in time, we have to look at the cause. And, you know, coming from a medical background, the etiology is very, very important. If we don't look at, mm. you know, our own individual racism, and we focus all the attention on institutional racism, systemic racism, then we're not going to get anywhere because you have not looked yourself in the mirror mm. and asked the question, why do I think like this? Who taught you? Mm -hmm. Because someone gave you a script. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You were taught. Yeah. If you go back and you think about, uh, there was a Broadway play years ago that I saw in New York called South Pacific. And in that play, there is a song. And the title of the song is, You've Got to Be Carefully Taught. Mm -hmm. You've got to be taught. Okay, before it's too late, before you're six or seven or eight. Mm -hmm. I hate all the people your relatives say, you've got to be carefully taught. Mm -hmm. You've got to be taught, okay? You know, as a child, you know, if you look at people, you know, I can give you example. My apologies for getting here. This is my first time, you know, with this group. And I apologize for just getting here because I, I failed to factor in that there's a time zone change. You know, you were looking at 12 o'clock, but 12 o'clock to me was 11 o'clock. And so I, I, I've missed the bulk of everything that has taken place. But again, I do wish people would take some time to look at how they were taught. You know, you sit at the dinner table and you hear your parents talking about this or talking about that. In many, many ways, they're giving you a script. That's right. Mm -hmm. And so Again, when we look at when we think about people that we encounter, how often are we ourselves passing along a script, giving them all the ammunition they need 
to fully develop the play that they are going to use for the rest of their lives. So I am a person born and raised in Birmingham, Alabama. So I look at the faces that are here and they're predominantly white. And I said, you know, you know, they're talking about this and they're talking about that, but in so many ways, you know, they don't get it. You know, and, and I'm hoping, you know, that at some point in time, you know, we can begin to look at people and address people, not from an iceberg perspective. That is just looking at people from the tip of the iceberg, what you see, because you know nothing else about a person, but you've made judgments mm -hmm. about them. Right. You know, I did some work with uh, here in the Madison area, uh, Grace Episcopal Church, and they were grappling with how can they get their entire congregation to begin to look at racism. And they asked me to, to kind of what I consider helping them. And I said, you know, give me some time to think about it. And so I came up with, in the title of it, and I said, I don't know how it's going to fly, but this is what I'm thinking. And the title of it is when the diagnosis is racism. Hmm. And they looked at me and they said nothing. I said, yes. I said, when the diagnosis is racism. So there were a series of workshops that were presented and the goal was to get people to begin to start thinking about themselves and how and what script was handed to them. So racism, as said, does not occur in a vacuum. You were taught, but I also want people to know that there are ways to get out of it too, especially if you are to become an ally especially if you're very, very interested in changing the who that you are. That's right. That's really helpful, um, uh, some of the pieces that you've offered, Joanne. I'm wondering, is, um, is there a question that, that, uh, that you wanted me to respond? Because I think there were you, you asked earlier, um, and I wasn't sure if you still want me to go back to, should we talk about racism and whether it's taught? Is that, should I respond to that? It's very, very important. As I said, you know, I do want people to do their own self-reflecting. Right. And right. look at how you were taught. What were the messages? Sometimes the messages were verbal. Sometimes they were nonverbal. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and, and I do want people to look at and think deep, dig deep, and yeah. think about what messages were sent to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so thanks for starting us off in that direction. And, you know, it's, it's a much longer piece that we, we explore in some of our other courses, but I, I would offer this, that there is so much that is taught to us that is mostly unconscious. And I think you, 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 you actually um, alluded to that. It's kind of the, the words, the actions, the inactions that happen in our, uh, our, our uh, families of origin it's in our daycares, it's, it's in the whole process of growing up. Kids learn codes, whether they're race codes or gender codes, about who to center and who to keep on the margins, who to focus on, who not to focus on, through just simply being born. So, they're, so the surprising thing is that, of course, we are born uh, without racism, but only for about 30 seconds. Because, no, I disagree. Well, I just let, let me let me just let me just finish with that. 
is that we know from the research on babies and you're a medical doctor, which, which also um, support, uh, will, you'll, you'll, you might like this research or want to explore it, is that within three, uh, within the first three months of life, babies are responding to humans of all different backgrounds, more or less the same, same speed, same kind of reactions. But within uh, six to nine months, and certainly under a year, there's already a change. We've seen that babies respond more quickly to people who share the same gender as their caregiver, as their caregiver, the same race and ethnicity as their caregiver. They're responding more quickly to people who share um, the same language and accent group as their caregiver. Researchers at this stage don't know exactly why or what the, what the mechanism is, but basically we are born with the hardware that has to define who my people are. And so my exposure is who I'm around. And then as we grow, we learn through the subtle and not so subtle things. Gender codes are taught not by parents having to say boys are like this, girls are like that. We don't have to do that. Kids are just surrounded by pink aisles and blue aisles when they walk down Walmart. And so these codes get built in through just being exposed to our social to our to our environment. Our, our, our socialization. And that's what, that's what helps nurture uh, the biologies at play. And on top of that, how we're socialized and, you know, the 500 years of colonization um, take, come into play, how slavery and the legacies of slavery and Jim Crow and black codes and all of those elements are in our environments. And as a result, uh, creating this idea of who's in the center and who's in the margins. And, and so there's many sophisticated things that relate from history to how we are, uh, and so therefore how we're socialized as well as our biology that's at play. And so you've got, you've got these elements that are interacting to, to, to continue the way things are, which is why it's harder to change things. So that's at least a starting point to, uh, to, that, to that conversation. I'm really appreciative Joanne, of you getting that started, I think you got more to say about it, but I'm, yeah, also, I was, I'm also, but I'm also just aware that we've got only three minutes left. So I, uh, if you want to say some more, I'm happy to, uh, to stay after, but I just want to make sure that we've, we've got any final comments and questions from anybody else that hasn't yet had a chance to share. And or, uh, so I'm just going to take one more look, see if anyone else in the space is any, anything else that hasn't been shared yet that'd like to, that'd like to offer. Uh, Shaquille, this is Anjali. I just wanted to say hi again. Emma, I met you last year doing yeah. a decoding race for white leaders. So I just wanted to plug for you as well that even although definitely the course was built primarily for um, white leaders, I want to challenge all leaders, including leaders that are from the racialized group, regardless of what racialized group you're from, to take the course because it was eye-opening for myself and my colleague Jennifer, who's Indigenous, to see all these different white colleagues from different continents and us being Canadians and I'm also from the West Indies to see, okay, we're from a learning background or as we have our own lived experience. We learned a lot too from our white counterparts and they also learned from us. So I wanna really plug that you guys take this, bring this back to your workplaces. And also most importantly, the last part that they shared with us in your own life, do the self-reflection. Cause mm -hmm. as we've talked about the racial script, which I've put a few chats in my own comments in there is that, as a black woman, 
as an immigrant <laughs> and also as a learning professional and a DEI new practitioner. Um, one of my thing is, you know, I'm a continual learner. I love to learn. I, I've been a nerd since back home in the Caribbean, even now, hence the field. Anthropology was my major at York University. I just love to learn about other people's culture. But one thing that I would say from my Caribbean background is even although we had colonization, you might have seen the whole thing with Kate and William, you know, in Jamaica, that's where I'm from, is that colonization helped me in Jamaica when I was growing up, they taught us our own history first. And so because of them teaching us our history, I was able in my own identity, having a strong West Indian background, history and culture, I was able to appreciate other people's culture from a very young age. When I was like eight years old, I was like, I wanna go to Paris, right? And I've just had the traveling bug, but to bring it back to the DEI, we have to continue to do the work on ourselves. I, yes, I'm a racialized woman, but my skin color is not my only identity. And I tell people that. And so I wanna challenge everyone just to continue to do the work. Challenge yourself on your own body. Is. You know, when we use the term racism, there's no such thing as racist, but it is a social construct, which has lots of implications, whether you're white, black, or whatever you subscribe to. So I just want to add that that my challenge, my script is, and I and I put a chat in there earlier on. So hopefully you guys can answer this offline. Is that you know, I even though I love to share, I love to do this work, my challenge is that sometimes I just get so goddamn tired and annoyed. I'll be very honest that I'll start the you know the learning that we do. You know, I'm from CIBC, you guys have worked with us in the past. You know, I'll do the lead, leading training for the leaders, but then I give them the resources, I'll have one-on-one -on -one conversations. But then when they come back and I'm like, well, you're not really doing the work. I kind of had this conversation with you two, two years ago or six months ago. I have ongoing thing. And why aren't you digging further? You have to make the mistakes. So I'll shut up because I know we're at time, but that's all I just wanted to say. So thank you again. <laughs> that's so great, uh, Angeli. Really appreciate your, your comments to help us close. Uh, mm -hmm. Any final thoughts for you, Emma? Um. Well, thanks, Angeli. I really appreciate uh, the plug you offered, and it's lovely to see you again. Um, one thing that's coming up for me as we close is that um, racism is a tradition. We've all been uh, trained within the tradition of racism, mm -hmm. and there has never been a form of oppression that hasn't been met with resistance. So anti-racism is also its own tradition. And the intervention we're trying to put forward today is an intervention within the anti-racist tradition, problematizing and disrupting the scripts within that uh, tradition of uh, praxis and engagement. So I look forward to the next time we do that again together. Perfect. Um, I just have to quickly say next month with Deepa is uh, very exciting. She's the first person I know of to research and write about um, the experiences of women of color in professional contexts in North America. And she has been published in Forbes and New York Times. And she's, if you look, uh, look at her book, and she's joining us next month to specifically talk about the scripts facing women of color in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And like we have been talking about here, when do you hold to the script? When do you let it go? What does that look like and how to do that dance in, in those identities? And of course, going beyond, she and I talked yesterday. There's a lot of common ground and I'm very excited to host her. So fabulous. Thank you. All right, everybody. Um, uh, if you have a final comment that you want to make uh, to us as, as a team, we're happy to stay for a few uh, additional minutes. Otherwise, at this point, what we tend to do is invite you to uh, unmute yourselves 
and say goodbye so we can bring all the voices into the room as we as we depart and we wish you well uh, the uh, a good rest of your day as well as a fabulous week. Unmute everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you, much. Bye. Thank you everyone. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Have a good Bye. day. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening today. Our next episode will be available soon.